Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith on Canada Day. Mike will be back tomorrow. It's a pleasure to be with you today. We are joined on the line from Toronto by Dr. Tom Koch. He is a professor of medical geography at UBC who specializes in the mapping of diseases and has written extensively on the subject, including one book called Cartographies of Disease, Maps, Mapping, and Medicine. A real pleasure to welcome Dr. Tom Koch to the program. Dr. Koch, Tom, good morning. Welcome. Happy Canada Day. Well, the same to you, sir. And uh, a pleasure to have you on the program, Tom. Uh, you, you've chosen quite a field in geography, a very, very focused, narrow aspect of an enormous subject. What drove you to mapping diseases and ep- epidemics? Well, it's not really that narrow of a field. What we do is we look at endemic, that is common, and epidemic diseases and all the things which either promote them or retard their progress. And so this covers a wide range of social and physical characteristics, as well as just the simple thing of who gets a transfer from whom. Sure, yeah. Uh, and and I, I, fell in, I fell into this part of it when I was uh, teaching a class at UBC some years, actually at the University of Hawaii, and issues came up about a very famous map that I used to teach, and then I had questions about it, and that just led me forward, and I took my areas of work in medicine, which was gerontology and chronic care, forward into the geography. And, and now, of course, we are able to go on and watch the nightly news on television, Tom, and of course, uh, the, the modern graphics artists at the TV stations have all copied your methodology, and it's easy uh, for us to look at a map, say, of North America on the nightly news to see the hot spots and, and who's doing well and so on. Uh, that basically follows out of the work that you've been doing for a long time. Well, not just me, me and many others. I can't claim that it was uniquely me. Okay. But sometime we should talk about those maps and what they say and don't say. Oh, well, I'd be happy to talk about that right now. I'm going to talk about masks in Toronto where you are right now, but I'd be happy to just follow up on that because, again, one of the things that we're beginning to get in terms of, of information is confusion, Dr. Tom, because we're now starting to hear, for example, in some jurisdictions in the States and elsewhere in the world, they're starting to withhold information about uh, outbreaks and, and upticks in cases, that sort of thing, which must, to a an an epidemic cartographer like yourself be incredibly frustrating. Let's draw a distinction between data and information. Okay. Data are the building blocks, things that somebody says at any one point. Information is how you put it together. When you're dealing with an epidemic, when you're dealing with especially a new disease, data is constantly changing and evolving. Mm -hmm. We have different definitions of what we mean when we say somebody has been infected, how many people have been tested, what tests are being used. Is it an antibody test or is it a swab test? And how is that stuff being reported? And where is it being reported? All of these things, as on the daily progress, make for huge differences sometimes in the data we use and therefore infect the information that we try and draw from it. 
So if you think you're confused, so are we. Oh, good. I'm happy to hear that because many of us are, especially when we know and are told by uh, uh, by news outlets, for example, that certain agencies and even certain jurisdictions have decided to withhold information. And that's, that just upsets the balance, particularly in terms of trying to understand the big picture. Well, the big picture is much easier to understand than the smaller picture. If you look at those maps that are being published Here's COVID-19 in Canada, here's COVID-19 in the U.S., here's COVID-19 in the world. A lot of it is uh, basically dot maps, big circles, or it's basically chloroplasts. It's just colors across states. And that's a very good way to see a very, very coarse general picture. Right. But as you know, in British Columbia, and as people know here in Ontario, the local situation is often much more complex. So do we separate out, when we look at those, the, the outbreaks among migrant farmers in some of the areas of southern Ontario? Mm-hmm. Do we look at the map of uh, Toronto or of Yakima or of Seattle and see a large spike of numbers? And do we say that's all in nursing homes? There was a huge spike at San Quentin, San Quentin Prison. In California, yeah. a thousand cases. Mm-hmm. That's going to certainly affect what you do look at Marin County in that part of California. So the, the maps we're seeing are a very, very general estimate. And to understand this epidemic, and this will take us right to the issue of masks, what we have to do is look much more at what's going on in an individual area and location and what's being done to either what the accelerators are, what promotes the disease, or what the inhibitors are, those things which damp it down. Interesting, because here in Canada, we have a very interesting spectrum of, of those uh, uh, targets to look at, because we have uh, British Columbia, in which we're very fortunate to have managed the situation as effectively as can be imagined, flattening the curve early on in the game. Next door to you in Quebec, we have the, I would say in Canada, at least the other extreme. It's nothing like what we're seeing in the States or saw in New York, but nonetheless, it's Canada's hot spot. So so uh, even in terms of being able to study the Canadian solution, Tom, uh, uh, you've got you've got quite a wide spectrum from which to choose with lots in between the two extremes. That's why the federal government made a decision, and I think they were correct early on, that they were going to coordinate, share information, but that the federal edicts on what to do in any one place would not be universal. Right. In the same way that here in Ontario, Premier Ford has said he's not going to issue a global order that everyone everywhere in Ontario has to wear masks because the situation in different cities and towns of the, the the province may be different. Absolutely. So you've got the, the, the major population areas, the GTA with John Tory in Toronto and his uh, counterpart in Hamilton, again, ordering um, the uh, wearing of masks uh, in public places, indoors, and on public transit for citizens of that particular area. People in Sudbury would be unaffected, right? That's pretty much it. Note how I let you segue directly into the issue of masks that you wanted to talk about. <laughs> you opened the I, door already. I will, take a, I, will, I will take a bonus out for that. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's also the difference between, I mean, there are elements of, of very good planning and very good 
public health and elements of luck in what's happened in our different provinces. Sure. Some of it has to do with, for instance, just when was the spring break? Was it so early that people were going down and getting infected before we closed the borders? That had a big effect. The date, dating of spring break had a big effect in Quebec. Most definitely. As opposed to British Columbia. Yep. Um, there's absolutely no doubt, I think it's universally agreed, that BC's uh, uh, Minister of Public Health, Bonnie, Dr. Bonnie Hendry, has done an excellent job early on in seeing where the accelerators were, like nursing homes, mm-hmm. and working on them very quickly. But some of it was luggage. There was a, a group of Hasidic Jews who went down to New York from Montreal before the closure, uh, there, it's a religious community which gets together in very dense settings yes. and came back and brought a, a huge accelerator with them. So some of it, some of this is just th- th- these local circumstances. Some of it are the generic things like how we handle nursing homes, how we handle prisons. And some of it has to do with the nature of the bacterium or virus itself. In for Mike Smith on Canada Day. Mike returns tomorrow. Hope your day is going well so far. It's not the warmest ever on record. It's a bit of a slow start, to say the least, but we have to hope that the weather off is forecast for later in the day, uh, which calls for better conditions than we're experiencing right now. We hope that pans out. A pleasure to welcome back BC Seniors Advocate Isabel McKenzie to the program to talk more about the announcement yesterday by Dr. Bonnie Henry and Minister Adrian Dix about uh, restrictions for visitors being eased at British Columbia's long-term care facilities. Isabel McKenzie, good morning. Happy Canada Day. Good morning and happy Canada Day to you. And thank you. Bless your heart for working on Canada Day, Isabel. Some of us just have to, right? (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about yesterday's most welcome announcement from Dr. Henry and Mr. Dix uh, with respect to long-term care uh, facility visits. Very controlled circumstances, Isabel, but very, very important. Yes, I think it was an extremely happy day for many uh, people in British Columbia, family members who've been separated from their loved ones for almost four months, and absolutely the residents uh, living in those care homes, and I think many of the staff working in the care homes also, for whom it's been very difficult to see family members separated and who have uh, had to bear an extra burden of care because the extra pair of hands that's sometimes around was absent for the past few months. And plus, I guess for staff members too, the, the, their emotional surrogates in many, many instances, particularly over this long period of no visitors. Yes, I think that in the normal course of events, obviously, uh, care aides and, and staff who work in long-term care are often substitutes for families. Sadly, not everybody in long-term care has family members who visit. Right. But during the last uh, almost four months, in addition to the no family visitors, has been everything else that's been going on. And so, obviously, uh, having to provide emotional support to residents who aren't seeing their spouse they used to see every day or their adult child, and on top of, you know, why is everybody wearing a mask and what is this COVID, I think has uh, certainly had a, had a toll on the staff. And so I think that many of them will be welcoming this as well. 
Isabel, did you have a role in all of this in connecting some of the dots for Dr. Henry? And and uh, because you're such a, a hub of information from from seniors and their families around British Columbia, they turn to you in a lot of cases just to ask you what on earth is going on. And you get a lot of fee- you get a lot of information piled up on your desk that would be valuable to to people like Dr. Henry. Well, certainly, uh, my well, office has been working closely with with government and with Dr. Henry and the public health office. But you know, I'm constantly in awe, frankly, of the wisdom of my colleague, Dr. Henry. Um, she's a public health uh, um, uh, physician by training and avocation, and yet knows does actually know quite a bit about uh, geriatrics and the elderly population. And right. I think that was evident at the very beginning. So, yes, I've been working um, with uh, Dr. Henry and the office and the government around what needs to be done in long-term care. But really, I think this is yet another careful, thoughtful um, step in the direction that we need to go. And that process has served us well in B.C. so far. And I think, you know, the, the way we've approached it, what... What I think is, um, for me, incredibly um, uh, important is that while the visit is restricted to one primary person at the moment, right. we, we didn't do this, you know, some provinces have gone with half an hour outside once a week, right. which isn't, you know, for a lot of people in long-term care, they can't visit that way. Um, the, this policy, the new guidelines allow for care homes to uh, assess the situation in their particular setting and for their particular residents and family members. And it allows, it doesn't restrict somebody to once a week, it doesn't restrict them to an hour a day. Um, It does restrict to one primary person, and that makes a certain amount of sense. You're reducing the number of different people coming into the care home. For sure, yeah. We want to do that. And I think that we also, during the first month, which is when we're going to assess the ability to increase beyond one person. It will give care homes the opportunity to sort of iron out all the kinks around how we're going to handle the screening, how we're going to handle the scheduling. Is it going to be, um, uh, you know, within a range of time? Is it going to be a specific uh, time? And I think uh, being able to do that while we're only dealing with one designated visitor will allow us to, to do it in a way that, when we move to the next phase, which will hopefully be to allow more than one visitor, right. um, not at a time, but more than one person be a visitor, I, I think that's important. Um, and, you know, they thought through the impact on the care homes. They acknowledged that there will be extra staffing needed to accommodate these visits with the, the public health um, oversight that's required. And money was made available to care homes to hire those additional staff. They don't have to be care staff necessarily, which is a good thing because we're short on care staff. But, um, you know, somebody who will ask the screening questions, make sure the person's wearing a mask, make sure they sanitize their hands, make sure they go to the right room. Right. Um, and, and the right so. room is, is key to it all, too, isn't it? Because you're not going to be able to go to your mom's room. Uh, you're going to have to go to a designated area in which the the resident of the home and the visitor to the home can meet, again, under controlled circumstances. Well, you actually may be able to go to your mom's room. And that was another thing that I felt was very good okay. in the guidelines. 
it it has recognized that um, you know if you can do an outdoor visit, great. Uh, we know it's safer, but you know that may not be appropriate. Um, if you need to meet in a designated area with inside the care home, that can be how the visit happens. It can also be in the residence room. Aha, uh-huh, I was because, unaware of that. Because really, when you think about um, the exposures, once we've recognized that um, we're asking people to wear a mask and we um, recognize that 75% of our residents are in their own room, that might actually be the most safe place True. for them to meet with their uh, loved ones. And so I think that that would be helpful. Now, the policy allows for the fact that about 25%, one in four residents, um, live in a room with other people. That's true, yeah. So that's where you're going to have to look at where is the designated area in the care home where they can meet because we don't want to expose the other people in the room to that loved one, if at all, to the other person's loved one, if at all possible. So, so visitor protocols will be dependent upon the type of accommodation the person you're visiting has. Yes, and the, and the care home themselves. What, how have they configured? What kind of staffing do they have? It may look different on different days of the week. Sure. Uh, depending on that. But I think that's the wisdom in in the policy, is that it is recognizing that an absolutely prescriptive, it's half an hour once a week outside, isn't going to work um, uniformly. Um, Absolutely only in the residence room. Well, that isn't going to work uniformly. Um, Absolutely not in the residence room. Well, that isn't going to work uniformly. Right. So I think it has recognized that there's different ways these uh, visits will happen. There's different frequency that they might happen. Uh, You know, they did a, uh, there's a study out of the Netherlands that showed they opened up visiting after, I think, about two months of of, uh, lockdown. And 57% of residents received a visitor. But that means 43% did not receive a visitor. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time in care homes over my career and I'd like to think they're overrun with visitors, but they're not, sadly. Um, so I think we also will gain some confidence as we move forward with this policy that the care homes are not going to be overrun with visitors. There's going to be a pent-up demand sure. at the beginning, right, of many people who've been waiting for four months. months. Now, there have been, yeah. yeah. Uh, there have been some essential visits going on during this period of time. Um, they have varied from care home to care home. Uh, but uh, certainly, I think uh, we will return to a little closer to normal um, in care homes, uh, recognizing that until there's a vaccine or effective treatment, we're not going to have the old days where you could come and go as you want. Bring the kids. The yeah, that's right. Not going to happen. Isabel, just, just before I take a break, and we're so grateful to have you with us today, it, I, I forgot to note one important detail. Perhaps you can help us. Can, can we start making those visits today, or do these new regulations and these new directives uh, uh, kick in next week? What's the start date? It will depend on the care home. So, uh, Care homes can begin doing it now. 
Uh, some will be ready. Some have planned for this. Some have a process in place for essential visitors, and they'll simply apply that process to visitors uh, at large. Okay. But I think the advice to family members is call the care home where your loved one lives and ask them when um, the, and what what are the protocols for that care home because they will be different. But the expectation is that within a week, you know, 10 days at the most, uh, care homes will, all care homes should be able to uh, accommodate this. They've been thinking about this for quite some time. Oh, sure. And a happy Canada Day to you. Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith, joined on the line by BC Seniors Advocate Isabel McKenzie. We've been talking about long-term care homes and the new regulations for visiting said facilities, as announced yesterday by Dr. Bonnie Henry and Minister Adrian Dix. Uh, you mentioned a few moments ago, Isabel, you've spent a lot of time in long-term care facilities throughout your professional career. And this is, this is an interesting step back to take a look at the bigger picture on a Canada Day. We've learned a lot from COVID-19 with respect to how we care for elders in Canada across the country um, as we take some comparison looks and we're not to be smug here about anything but it looks from this distance like BC long-term care arrangements are in better shape than some other provinces. And I'm thinking of Quebec and Ontario, particularly Quebec, where they had to call in the army for crying out loud due to some pretty terrible conditions in some facilities. Is it, uh, is it helpful to know that in BC we are in somewhat better shape or are we flattering ourselves? Well, I think in terms of how we've managed COVID in long-term care, BC has certainly done better than Ontario and Quebec. We have far fewer of our care homes have experienced an outbreak and those that have experienced outbreaks have not had the same uh, degree of, um, of, of outbreak spread within the care home as we've had here in BC. We've managed to contain some of our outbreaks much more successfully. Mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, we certainly have issues in long-term care in British Columbia. We had them before COVID and we'll have them when the pandemic passes. And they're not dissimilar to some of the issues you find in care homes across Canada and indeed across North America um, and probably around the world as well. One of the areas where BC is, is a little ahead of Ontario and Quebec is around, we were talking about how many residents were in single rooms. Mm-hmm. And th- we are a bit better. We've uh, Ontario and Quebec have... Uh, a higher percentage of their care homes are older and have people in multiple or multiple people in a room. Right. And that is problematic. Uh, but I think the issue of, you know, our management of COVID, uh, it has been better in part because overall our numbers are better. Uh, don't forget, we had the first care home outbreak in Canada. That's and true. We had the first, and we had the first death in Canada of COVID. So we clearly could have become an epicenter. We could have been the New York of Canada or the northern Italy of Europe or UK, as is now uh, becoming clear. But we didn't. And there's lots of reasons why uh, we didn't. Some has been uh, good planning, good foresight and other elements of luck, frankly. Um, but, you know, uh, luck isn't good for you if you don't leverage the advantage it gives you. Right. So. The fact that our spring break came uh, later was a stroke of good luck. But we leveraged that. Uh, We paid attention and we did what we needed to do. 
And I think our very early, very, very early um, mm-hmm. interventions by public health in our long-term care homes uh, was one of the, the big advantages. This You've heard uh, Dr. Henry talk about the SWAT team approach that goes into the minute an outbreak is declared in a care home. Sometimes in Ontario and Quebec, uh, public health was not getting into uh, physically into the care home, uh, if at all, until it was quite far advanced. And once it gets away from you, it gets away from you. Yeah. And then I think we need to remember that the conditions the Canadian forces saw in the care homes they were called into, they were called into those care homes because there was a problem. There. Sure. And and there definitely are, Sterling. We, we have some problems in B.C., um, it's not in every care home. Uh, some family members and residents think that the care they receive is great, but not everybody thinks it's great. And those, some of the things we've done in response to COVID, I think, are going to help us in the long run. Certainly the wage leveling that we've seen and the attention to the staffing, I think that's uh, going to be key. And I think there's going to be a renewed emphasis on the um, the physical environment because of things like infection control, and we might see some more investments there. I think we're going to see some financial support from the federal government uh, to help with that. So I, you know, I think that we will see improvements over in BC over the next three to four years. Interesting. Isabel, I've only got a minute left, and I'm glad you brought up staffing, because uh, the, amongst the frontline workers that we've come to recognize and appreciate so much more over the past few months in that select group of people are indeed long-term care home workers who typically have been underpaid. Staffing out those facilities has been a long-term problem. Uh, now that they, our esteem and appreciation of the work they do has increased, do you think it's going to be easier to staff out seniors' facilities going forward? Well, um, we're going to have to do more than bang pots at 7 o'clock at night. Um, I, I think the reality, Sterling, you've hit the nail on the head, uh, underpaid and underappreciated. And I think uh, the day of reckoning has come for us to understand that 70% of the people providing care in our care homes are the care aides, and they're some of the lower-paid uh, health care workers out there. And some of what we've done in response to COVID will help with that, with the wage leveling and and getting everybody up to the um, to the industry standard that's part of it that will make it a more attractive profession uh, making the jobs full time making it so you don't have to run between two sites in order to cobble together uh, a good income I think that is all going to be helpful now those are orders that have been put in place for the pandemic Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith. Happy Canada Day to you. A little cool beginning to the day, but it's a big day right across our country as Canadians in every corner of this huge country, the second largest country on earth with a tiny population smaller than the state of California. That's a lot of room for a very small crowd, but we'll be loud and uh, carry on a little bit as best we can under the new regulations. It's time to welcome Linda Annis to the program, not in her capacity as a Surrey City Councillor this morning, but as the CEO of Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers. We're here to talk about crime and summertime because they seem to go together oh far too well. Linda Annis, happy Canada Day. Welcome. 
Welcome. Thank you so much, and happy Canada Day to you as well. Thanks, Linda. How long have you been associated with Crime Stoppers? Well, over 10 years now. It's hard to believe it's been a very, very fast uh, 10 years and a very rewarding uh, uh, 10 years in helping you know, make uh, Metro Vancouver a safer place. I got to tell you, I still miss the voice of my old friend John Ashbridge doing those. Metro Vancouver police are looking for the following suspect radio announcements that he used to do, that you used to do, that were so entertaining and productive. You got a lot of results from those, didn't you? We sure did, and I sure miss John as well. He was such an incredible part of the Crime Stoppers program. And as a result of uh, John's efforts and others, uh, we've had more than half a billion, that's billion dollars worth of property and drugs recovered since the inception of the program in Metro Vancouver alone. And uh, so that's been 10 years now? Uh, 10 years since I've been with the program. Uh, the program has been around for just over 30 years. And uh, yeah, because I can remember, I was going to say, I think I can remember talking about Crime Stoppers on the radio for more than 10 years. Uh, let's talk about summer 2020, Linda, because, oh, it's a summer like no other uh, with so many different things and so much stress still going on. People are anxious about going out. People are anxious about a lot of things. People are still much happier in many cases. Just staying home, thank you. Keep, you know, playing it safe. And yet it's summertime and we, we know from much research that crime levels typically rise in the summertime, don't they? Absolutely, and particularly crimes around your home. Oftentimes, you know, we, we get a little bit relaxed in our uh, behavior. We're out in our backyard, and we forget that we've left our front door open. Yep. And, you know, crooks, uh, they don't take a holiday like we do sometimes in the summer. Um, you know, if we're in our backyard, they're coming in our front door. So we need to make sure that we keep our house locked uh, in spots that's not visible to us uh, when we're out enjoying the outdoors. Uh, now you're on a roll already, and I love it. So this uh, this whole thing is about to you and I to just go through a few of those. You know, a lot of it comes down to common sense, Linda, but, you know, you get caught up in things. You're right. You get busy. It's happened in our house. It happened just a couple of days ago. We were both working in the front and in the back, and we both ended up in the back and walked into the house, oh, maybe 15, 20 minutes later, and the front door was wide open. We didn't even bother to close the darn thing, let alone lock it, and you just get busy, and you just don't think... And you forget, of course, the bad guys are watching. They case things before they break into them. Absolutely. And sometimes you think, oh, I forgot that garden tool in the backyard. I'll just run around really quickly. Well, it just takes a second for them to get in the house if the door is not locked. So let's talk about some other common sense remedies that you have, you and your friends at Crime Stoppers have assembled to make summer 2020 a little more, a little safer for us all. Well, one of the most common ones is people, you know, leave their car out in the driveway with things in and, you know, they figure, well, I'm going to go out later so I won't bother to lock my car up. But in there uh, are some valuables and perhaps your garage door opener and someone may just open your garage or open your car, I should say, take the garage door, go and come back later and they've got full access to your house when you aren't home. Ah, the garage. I was going to say, you know, a lot of people in the little glove thing between the, the armrest between the two seats, there's usually a little pull-up top with a, a container, a compartment in there. A lot of people like to keep a parking meter money in there. That's what I thought you were going for. No, they're after the, the, uh, the garage door openers. Well, and they'll, they'll take the, the change as well. You know, they love to just uh, do a dash and go, right? And they've got that plus your garage door opener. And uh, you don't even sometimes realize it until it's far too late. 
Anything else on your short list of smart tips to make summer 2020 a little safer and more enjoyable? Well, I have sort of a nine to nine approach. So just before you go to bed at night, uh, at nine o'clock at night or whatever time you go, you should just do a quick check around your house. Make sure your bikes, your ladders and your garden equipment is all put away, that your windows are locked. Uh, oftentimes we like to leave them open at night, but we should make sure they're locked, particularly the lower floors. Do a double check on your, your all of your doors. If you've got video equipment, make sure that the batteries aren't dead mm-hmm. uh, so at least you can see what's going on. And another really good tip is keep the porch light on because if there's a dark spot, it's an open invitation to crooks to try to break into your house. Something else that, you know, when we do go away or even if we're at work for the day, we oftentimes now are used to ordering purchases online. Sure. Make sure you've got someone to pick up your parcels and your newspaper if you're going away, if you're even you know, at work for the day, or cancel the service while you're not there. That's you know, a real uh, good sign to someone that you're not home, and they may well just come take your parcels as well as break into your house. That's right. Porch pirates. It's become a thing, hasn't it? Linda, I wanted to ask you before I let you go, how important a tool uh, for crime stopping have those front door cameras become? They're hugely critical because if, you know, your house is broken into or there's someone lurking around your house, it's excellent footage that you can give to your local police department. And they're not, they're not terribly expensive either. They aren't, and I think every home should have them. Uh, It's also a great safety mechanism. If you're in your house and you want to see who's at your front door or who's at your back door, you can just have a quick look and look on your phone or look on your iPad or whatever. I highly recommend them. And some insurance companies might even cut you a bit of a break on the premiums if you're doing that extra bit of uh, self-surveillance, won't they? They sure will, and same if you have an alarm system. You know, there's a a real advantage in terms of savings on your home insurance. So great, great things to be taking into account. And are you still uh, offering rewards for tips to the anonymous uh, tip line? We sure do. So if anyone sees anything that they think is suspicious in act, you know, activity around their home or anywhere, they should always feel free to call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS or visit our website, www.solvecrime.ca. Depending on what you know, the outcome is of the tip, uh, someone could receive up to $5,000 for the anonymous information. And the beauty about Crime Stoppers is we just want the information. We don't take any personal details whatsoever so that if someone is arrested, they don't know who reported it, and you never have to go to court to ever testify. And it says so right on the website, too. Your anonymity is guaranteed, and that website, friends, again, is solvecrime.ca. And, Linda, could you give us that tip line phone number one more time, please? I sure can. 1-800-222-TIPS. And if I can just also add, we have an app, P3, and you can download that from the Android or uh, Apple Store, just to, uh, and it's very easy, and you can leave your tip information right on the app. Thanks, Linda. We appreciate your time on Canada Day. Keep up the good work at Crime Stoppers. Appreciate the time. Happy Canada Day again. You too.